The scripture reading this morning will be taken from Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 37. That can be found on page 879 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 37. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Good morning. It is good to see each of you. If you are a guest this morning, uh, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here, and we hope that we can be an encouragement to you. It's a wonderful time of the year, as many families will be spending additional time together this week, and as we as a nation give much more thought to Thanksgiving, and of course, as Christians, we ought to be people of gratitude all the time, but it is wonderful to have a concentration upon it. And we have a a little tradition around here of creating a hundred things of which you're grateful for by Thanksgiving. And if you haven't started that list, you can start today by making 20 each day. And by Thursday, you'll have a hundred. I want to encourage you, whatever you need to do to make sure that you spend extra time in appreciation and in prayer to God. Be sure and do whatever you need to do to discipline yourself this week in that. And be sure if you're a parent or a grandparent that you bring special attention in the lives of your children and grandchildren, uh, because if we ever lose sight of gratitude, we definitely lose sight of God. When we think about uh, the good things that have been happening, last weekend we've had uh, the 20-something retreat, and the newly marrieds had a wonderful retreat, and of course all of them back home Sunday, and that was good. And then uh, this week we've had uh, a group of nine that have been working all week in Purlington, Mississippi, which is continuing the Katrina relief. And there was a house that was finished up this week. They had just a tremendous week. The reports are so good of what took place this past week. And that group came in about midday yesterday. And then a lot of good was done with Thanksgiving baskets and raking leaves. God just gives us a lot of opportunities and a lot of good workers to do it. And we give him all the glory. And we're thankful for this time of the year when we can think about how good God has been to us. When we think about this wonderful fall focus, there's just been so many wonderful and powerful comments made about thinking about the life of Jesus Christ and definitely one of the 
studies that sobers our thinking will be done today in your Bible classes and also during this time and, and intentionally we'll try to take a little bit different angle during the Bible, uh, the, the sermon time than maybe what you are in the time of your Bible class. But just to introduce the theme for the day, I would like to give you a quote from Frederick Farr's book about the life of Jesus Christ. And, and before I actually start the quote, he has been writing about the physical torture that is the slow, agonizing death of crucifixion. And he talks about the dizziness, the cramps, the thirst, the, the shame, the continuous torment, uh, the mortification of untended wounds. And then, if you will, stay with me on this lengthy quote. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposed gradual gangrene. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing. There was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety which made the prospect of death itself, the unknown enemy of whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. I guess if you and I could imagine the true agony of crucifixion, we could also imagine the realization that those who are crucified would love to die right now. Not to carry it on for hours and hours on that cross. But you see, that wasn't the design of crucifixion. Crucifixion was to be the most inhumane death that an individual could suffer, a long, torturing death. And you see, as we look at that cross, because of the physical agony of the cross, many times that's all we can think about. And there's perhaps nothing wrong with thinking about that. But there's so much more to the cross than a physical sacrifice. It's a spiritual sacrifice. It's redemption of mankind. But even at that, there's more to the cross than that. You see, the cross was actually where two roads met. Right now, if you and I stood in in downtown Nashville, we could look to the east down I-40 and and we could say, that direction, this road leads to Knoxville. And you could look to the west and you could say, in that direction, this road leads to Memphis. And and those two roads come together and, and they meet right here in Nashville, Tennessee. What met at Golgotha? Have you ever thought about the very fact that the most wicked deed that mankind has ever done Man has traveled that wickedness for for generation after generation, but man has never done anything as bad as crucify the Son of God. And that road that led mankind to the cross met at the very same road that led from heaven with the most gracious gift that God has ever given man. And that gift of Jesus met at the cross. Never before had a road been so dark. Never before had a road been so brilliant. Never before had a road been so wicked. Never before had a road been so righteous. Never before had a road stolen away a man's life of perfection. Never before had a road given a life of perfection. 
Friends, never before and never after will we ever see two roads of such extremities meet in one event. And today, we stand in awe of that and we stand in deep appreciation of that and we'll study that in depth in our Bible classes. But I would like for you and I this morning to just kind of back up from that road. And I would like for us as a third party looking into this event, I would like for us to think about who were those wicked people. Because if we are an unbeliever, we'll fall in one of four groups that were standing around the cross. The text that was so capably read for us reminds us of the fact that the crucifixion was a horrible event, and very much so, there were soldiers involved in this event. As we see the four individuals, let, let's back up one. Just You're keeping up with me better than I'm keeping up with me. The, the, uh, we, we see these four individuals, and, and we see one group we're going to study about, which will be the soldiers, and that's, they're probably acting out of ignorance. But then we're going to study about another group that they probably knew more about God, but they still chose to be wicked. And then we'll talk about another group that they had been faithful, at least it surely appeared, but then in their fickleness they became wicked. And then we'll study about the religious wicked, which perhaps we could make the argument is the most wicked of all. So let's look at this story. Much of the text that was just read is, deals especially with the soldiers the soldiers, there's nothing about what was read to us causes us to believe that they had a real good understanding of who Jesus Christ was. Being of, of the uh, background of working for the Roman emperor, we can imagine that these soldiers ha- would have at least heard of Jesus Christ because his fame would have spread throughout all of the region at that time. When an individual can work miracles such as raising individuals from the dead or giving sight to those who are blind, you can't really hide that. But for them, probably the the greatest knowledge they had was that Jesus was more of a circus act. Hey, if this guy can perform things like that, I would like to see it. That's what we see Herod doing. Herod has no concern for Jesus and and for giving him a a just Uh, trial. All Herod wanted to do was see one of the great circus acts that he had to do. But I'd like for you to think for just a moment. Even though these individuals had no personal vendetta against Jesus, they still were so wicked. They still inflicted so much pain in Jesus' life. If you have your Bible open, look again back at the text. Before the text, verse 26 tells us that Pilate had Jesus scourged. That within itself is is an unbelievable torturing. But then in 27, we read that they took Jesus into the praetorium and the garrison gathered around him. Now picture, if you will, because the religious were so righteous, they didn't want to enter into the praetorium because there they would defile themselves and it's the week of the Passover and they wanted to be able to celebrate the Passover. Isn't that interesting? The Jews are having an innocent man crucified, but they don't want to defile themselves in a Gentile's house so that they can celebrate the Passover. Let that sink in. I know some of you have thought about that many times. If you've never thought about that before, mull that one over tonight and think about how disturbed we can become as religious people. But moving on. 
So now the point is, they brought Jesus out of sight of the Jews. So what the soldiers are doing at this point, they're not doing what we're reading right now so that they can receive favor of the Jews. You know why they're doing what they're doing? Because they're wicked. When you and I live a life of ignorance, where we do not know God, we can't expect love and compassion and truth to reign. And this is a perfect example of it. Look what they do in 28. They stripped him. There was so much shame. Don't read that as if it's just a phrase in the Bible. Imagine if you were the one standing right here in front of a group right now and the entire crowd is jeering at you and they're laughing at you and they're mocking you and someone comes up and just strips your clothes off just so they can laugh at you some more. That is the shame that the Hebrew writer speaks about where Jesus despised the shame. But they had a reason why they were bringing this humility on him. They wanted to bring even more humility on him. That's why. So they're going to strip him in in that humiliating act to put a robe upon him because they're going to dress him up. You know when people are dressed funny, and and I don't mean to belittle anybody, but, but using an old, old term, it's called idiot boys on the streets. It was... It were the homeless. It was the ones that were mentally deranged before there were institutions. Today, we think about the homeless in our inner cities. And and we see the outfits that they put on and, and their clothing isn't matched. And there's nothing normal about what they wear. And immediately you look at them and you say, oh, something's wrong with them. And people that have no compassion, what do they do? They laugh at them. What were they doing to Jesus? Jesus was dressed like a, a normal citizen. Hey, if we're going to really laugh at him, We've got to make him look ridiculous. Let's dress him up like a king. Hey, we can make fun of the fact that the Jews had been saying earlier in the week that he was their king. Remember, we heard when he marched into town, they were hailing him king of the Jews. Oh, this is going to be great. Get one of those robes. Slip that on him. And then notice in the very next verse in 29, they twist a crown of thorns. Any of them could have pulled out a Roman coin and what would have been on it would have been Caesar with his wreath, the crown on his head. You see, if they were going to make him look like their king, they had to put a crown, a wreath, a crown made out of greenery on his head, except for mockery and pain, let's make it out of briars, thorns, and let's press it upon his brow. And every king, and notice in his right hand, it says, has to have a scepter. He has to have that rod of power. Usually they were made out of ivory and gold. Now let's just give him, let's give him a heavy stick here. Let's let him just hold that reed. And then, when they have Jesus dressed up in the most ridiculous outfit, They literally take a knee to mock him. Hell, king of the Jews. And can you imagine the laughter that they would have made? Can you imagine them punching each other in the arm? And can you imagine as they stand, perhaps it even made them a little bit angry. And so they carry it to a higher notch of violence. As then they begin to spit upon him the ultimate human indignity. And then they continue with the rod to beat his head. Friends, it's easy for us to say, I can't imagine dying on the cross. Most of us here couldn't imagine taking the beating 
that Jesus took from the Jews, then from Herod's men, and then from Pilate's men. And that was just on the way to the cross. But again, for this lesson's sake, we go back to this question. Why? Why would they do that? Ignorance. And today, any time you and I live a life separated from the knowledge and the will of God, We'll find ourselves doing things that if we had the knowledge of God and the close relationship with God, we too would step back and say, why is that happening? Let us beware. Let us beware of the wickedness of ignorance. But also let's see a second group. A second group is as we look at the cross. As we look at the cross, we see that Jesus is not hanging on the cross as the only one that day. Instead, we see the cross is flanked on either side by thieves. Look with me, if you will, as we go to verse 38. Notice what the thief said again, or what is said about them in 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him. Notice that term robber there. One on the right hand, another on the left. And then the verses we're skipping over right now, there, there was a lot of mocking of Jesus that we'll come to in a few minutes. But notice what happened in 44. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And so here are two individuals that they are guilty of a crime. The the word for robber here, in, in the original Greek, there is a Greek word of klepti. And if you think about it for just a moment, you'll know what that's the root of, kleptomania. And, you know, that's the idea of an individual that goes around and just picks up small things on a regular basis and has a problem with that. That's not the word here. The word here is for a robber, one that plunders, one that it has become their life. In other words, one that has done large deeds of stealing, if you will. And so, so here are individuals that whatever they have done is so bad that they're hanging on a cross for it. They're guilty. There's three dying here and there's only one that's innocent. And what are the other two on the cross doing? They're hearing these others that are passing by and they're hearing the religious people that are standing there. They're hearing him mock Jesus. And you know what they do? These guys are dying on a cross and they decide to join in the mocking of Jesus. It's almost unthinkable. But you know what is even worse? They had a knowledge of who who Jesus was. We know that just a few minutes when the... One robber finally decides he wants Jesus to be the Lord of his life. He knew more about Jesus than a lot of people on the earth that day knew about him. But isn't that interesting that we can have a knowledge of Jesus but choose not to act on it? Up to that point, that's what these robbers had done. Well, what had they acted upon? Somebody says, well, I guess there's no way we can know. Wait a minute. Of course we can know. What had they acted upon? What had moved those robbers through life? Greed, self-indulgence. When individuals become so greedy that they move to stealing, that's what's moving them through life. And so here are two individuals that they know about Jesus, they know about God, but they know that there's another life that they would rather live. They would rather live to have things fulfilled things 
trying to fulfill their life. And of course, possessions will not ever fulfill our life. But then that brings us to the third group. Look, if you will, in verse 39 and 40. And let's see this third group. They're called those who are passing by. Look in 39. Those who passed by blasphemed him. Now notice the mockery here. Wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourselves. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Now who are these people that were passing by? Well, they would have been the Jews because, remember, it's the Passover. The Passover, as we've talked in past weeks, could have over a couple of million people at it. It could definitely have hundreds of thousands of people at it. Where did they crucify? They didn't crucify in the city. Remember, they went just outside the city gates. That would have been next to all of the roads that would have been coming together. And so you can imagine hundreds of thousands of people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. You can imagine the city is literally bursting at the seams with guests because the Passover would have been the largest attendance all year long. And so all of these people that are passing by, who are they? Well, we have strong reason to believe that it's just a general population of the Jews. The same general population that on Monday of that week were willing to put out the palm leaves and, and they were willing to hail Jesus King. And they weren't mocking on Monday. They really were willing to make Him their King on Monday. Friends, how is it that you move from Jesus being your King on Monday to wanting to crucify Him at the end of the week and then while He is dying? That's not enough. Let this sink in. While he is dying, hey, let's go back out there and let's walk back by him again and let's make fun of him. Let's not let him die in peace. Let's make a royal mockery of this man. And someone says, seems like we're putting a lot together there. Well, just the two things that they brought up in just these two verses lets us know that these people knew quite a bit about what had already been said about Jesus. Notice how they brought up the temple and they brought up if he is the son of God. Back up a page in your Bible and when you go to the 26th chapter of the book of Matthew, 26th chapter, this is the trial. This is what we studied last week. Remember he was arrested and and in the middle of the night, they had a, a type of a monkey trial. And a part of the trial when the Sanhedrin court came together at morning was for this purpose. Now, now think how unjust this is. We're going to have him crucified. We've just got to figure out how in this trial we can make it look like it's legal to have him crucified. Because we've got to take him to Pilate to have him crucified. And so they couldn't find anything. And so that's why in 60, the very last of verse 60 says, But at last... Two false witnesses came forward. We couldn't find anybody that could tell the truth, but we did find two people that would lie about him. Now, what did they say? Verse 61, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus' answer proves 
to, that, that he does believe that he is. But do you see the two things? False witnesses come forward. They finally are able to say, Ah, oh, he's blaspheming God. That's what we'll crucify him over. Well, what were the two things? Can you tear down the temple and build it back in three days? Are you really the son of God? And now we come to those who are passing by the cross. And what are the two things that they wag their head and they mock Jesus, literally speaking to Jesus? Why don't you just come down from there? If you can tear down a temple that didn't take months to build. In our society, we're accustomed to buildings taking a few months to build. Took years to build. If you can tear this building down and build it back in three days, why don't you just take care of yourself? After all, if you are the Son of God, why don't you just take care of yourself? And all of this is done in blasphemy and the wagging of the head, which implies the strong mockery. Fickleness. When we think of individuals, that sometime in their life, they knew the will of God and they followed it. Maybe they grew up in a home where there was a good Christian parent or parents. Or maybe they grew up under the influence of good Christian grandparents. Or maybe somewhere in life they decided to become a Christian, but then somewhere along the way, they lost the way. Why is it that you think these people became fickle during that one week? Early in the week, whenever they were saying, we want Jesus to be our king, what did they want in addition to Jesus being their king? We want Jesus to be our king because we think Jesus is going to lead this earthly kingdom and he's going to deliver us from the oppression of Rome. By the end of the week, they started figuring out something. He's not going to help us from the oppression of Rome. We don't want him to be our king. Instead, we want him to be killed. Now, we don't have time to strongly develop this. And, and tonight, even though it's an entirely different topic, we'll be akin to this application tonight in our study. And it's this. Do you want God in your life because you've got all of these things in mind that you want God to work out? Or do you want to be involved in God's life because you believe He's worthy to be your God no matter what He asks of you? You see, they were all excited about being a follower of Jesus as long as it got them what they wanted, free from the Roman Empire. But they became very fickle when they started realizing that to follow Jesus isn't about self-indulgence. It's about becoming a disciple of the Lord. You know, there are a lot of people they say they're excited to follow Jesus until they figure out that they love fornication more than they love Jesus. They love homosexuality more than they love Jesus. They love alcohol more than they love Jesus. They love drugs more than they love Jesus. They love the acceptance of others more than they love Jesus. They love power more than they love Jesus. They love the praise of people more than they love Jesus. Friends, you can put anything in the blank and the bottom line is that's what causes us to be fickle. There comes a time in our life when maybe once we were wholly devoted to the Lord, but then there's something we, it's strictly selfishness, it's something I want in my life more than I want Jesus. What put Jesus on the cross in such a way that people would walk by and mock Him some of the mocking took place because of the 
fickle, wicked people that decided by the end of the week there were some other things in their life that they loved more than Jesus. But then the final group that we see this morning are the ones that walked right along with them. Notice as we read in verse 41 and 42 again, likewise the chief priest also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, now notice how nothing they say is to Jesus. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him know now, come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Do you see the very fact? Well, just paint an image in your mind. One group comes up and mocks you, speaking directly to you. But then a second group comes up in authority. And they are so proud and arrogant that they won't even look up and speak to Jesus. They'll only stand in His presence and talk about Him to each other. I want to ask you, which would be harder for you? To bear the physical pain of the cross or to bear all of the beating and mockery without striking back? I honestly believe that I could take the pain of the cross without sinning much easier than I could take the mockery that they brought upon Jesus without Him lashing out. The religious leaders, to our knowledge, never doubted Jesus' miracles. They were too blunt. They were too too in your face. They were too powerful. They were too real. Do you realize we never read once in the Bible where the chief priests, the scribes, the high priests, never once do we read them saying, I don't think he really healed that man. I don't think that he really can do miracles. But you know what we do read? We read examples like this on one occasion whenever... He was able to help a man who was mute and and was deaf. He was able to release that demon out of that man's life so that now he could hear and, and he could speak again. And you know what the leaders said? The leaders said, okay, he did it, but he did it by the power of Beelzebub. Now think how kin that kind of language is to what these men are doing right here. These men are walking by him, and in a sense they're saying... Oh, if he really is the Son of God, if he really does have such great power with God, why doesn't God bring him off of this cross? See how that could set him up to say, see, God is more powerful than Beelzebub. He was on this earth doing Beelzebub's will, but God was the one that kept him on the cross because he was blaspheming. Summary of this point. Those chief priests and elders and scribes could not imagine a leader having power and not using it for self-interest. Dads, elders, those of you that are supervisors at work or you own your own business and people work for you, any of you that have authority, let me bend your ear on this one more time. Are you one of those people 
that you're like the wicked religious ones, that you believe that power is given to you for self-interest and for self-promotion. One of the things that these individuals could not imagine is that Jesus had the power to come off that cross and wouldn't do it. Because they had spent their life using all the power they had to promote themselves. That is how wicked their religion had become. Jesus shows us the beauty of power. Whenever we're willing to take our power and glorify God by serving others, even when it costs us immensely. You know, we talked about two roads coming together. You know, we talked about Jesus dealing with all of this and not sinning. Can you imagine at the end of that six hours of hanging on the cross how that must have been powerful? There were also miracles that took place. Remember, it was dark in the middle of the day. The earthquake so much that rocks began to break. Some were resurrected from the dead and the veil in the temple rent from top to bottom. That must have been very powerful also. Remember how we talked about two roads and met? It was the wickedness of man and the grace of God. As we close this lesson this morning, I'd like for you to look at this next slide. And I'd like for you to notice the beauty of God's grace. Remember we talked about the soldiers? In Matthew, the 27th chapter, verse 54, one of those soldiers at the end of the day had stopped being ignorant. He had seen enough. He said, truly, this man must be the Son of God. Are the thieves on the cross? Apparently, at the beginning of their time on the cross, they both were reviling him and, and railing on him. But you know what? By the end of the day, one was saying, I want a place with you in the kingdom. And those people that were passing by and were mocking and they were fickle. You know, 50 days later, they're going to celebrate another holiday in Jerusalem. It was the day of Pentecost. And those very individuals were told that you have taken Jesus with your wicked hands. You have crucified and slain him, but God has raised him up. And they shuddered and they were pricked in their heart. And they said, what shall we do to be saved? And they were told to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 41 that all those that received the word were added to them. And then when we come to Acts, the sixth chapter, in verse 7, we read a powerful passage there at the end of a short story about widows that have been neglected and seven servants that have been appointed. And the result of all of this working out the way God designed it, we learn that the multiple the, the disciples multiplied and that the knowledge of the word of God increased greatly. And then in the last part of verse 7, we read that many of the priests were converted to him. Isn't that awesome? All four groups of the ones who were so wicked that day. When Jesus hung from that cross and he said, Father, forgive them. That wasn't just his words. That was literally why he was dying. Father, forgive them. When we take the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection, you and I will never hear a more powerful story. We'll never hear a story that has a greater importance in our lives 
And this morning as we continue in Bible class, I hope that all of us will really be sober in our thinking of what Jesus has done for us. And if that has touched you this morning, we extend the Lord's invitation. If you want to be immersed into Christ or you have been and you want to come back home, if we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.